So it's 2 Kings, um, chapter 2, verses 1 to 25, and it starts on page 566 of the Red Book. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elijah were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elijah, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elijah said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elijah and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elijah replied. So be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elijah. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elijah and asked him, Do you know the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elijah had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and stuck the water with it. I'm sorry, struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elijah, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elijah replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elijah saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elijah then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elijah. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Look, they said, we, your servants, have 50 able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has picked him up 
and set him down on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elijah replied, do not send them. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse. So he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days but did not find him. When they returned to Elijah, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? The people of the city said to Elijah, look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says, I have healed this water, never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the word Elijah had spoken. From there, Elijah went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them. In the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I hope that's all clear. <laughs> hardly, hardly need to preach, do you, after a passage like that? Very obvious what's going on. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. If we haven't met, my name's uh, Jack. Uh, it's great to have you uh, with us this morning as we finish off uh, this little series in Elijah. Well, January is coming to an end which means that for a lot of people, the year is really begins to start in earnest. And I wonder how you are feeling about the year that is to come. Uh, obviously, in any years, there's going to be highs, there's going to be lows, there's going to be some great joys, there's going to be successes, there's going to be time with family and friends that's precious and wonderful, there's going to be times of deep spiritual connection, there's going to be times when everything seems to be going okay. But in any year, there's also going to be lows, aren't there? There's going to be times when you wonder to yourself, what on earth is this all about? Is it worth it? Times when you can just get overwhelmed by everything that's happening in the world, everything that's happening in your life. Times when you feel broken and beaten down. So how do you get through? How do you survive the ups and downs of any given year? How are you going to survive the ups and downs of 2022? How do you remain steady and constant in a time of anxiety and worry? Well, I've got a pretty simple analogy for you this morning. Uh, a crucial part uh, of a vehicle, particularly a boat, is ballast. Uh, Counterintuitively, for those of us who did arts degrees, a boat actually needs to be weighed down by rocks or other heavy materials so that it sits at the right point of the water. Because if it isn't heavy enough, it's, if it's riding too high, then it runs the risk 
of being blown over and sinking. And so in order to approach a rough section of sea, in order to be able to get through the highs and the lows of the voyage, to be able to resist the winds that buffet the boat, it's important for the boat to have the right ballast in order to keep it steady. No ballast and it's all over. And so as we approach 2022, as we're about to get into it properly, what is going to be your ballast? What is going to be the thing that gives you the weight and the support that you need to be stable? Because we know there's going to be highs, we know there's going to be lows. You can't wish those things away, they're going to happen. But what is going to give you the support, the stability in order to ride out the waves? Well, that's the question that we're going to be looking at as we jump into this final uh, and perhaps the weirdest and most wonderful story uh, in 2 Kings 2. Uh, so have your Bibles open. Uh, we're going to work our way through that passage. Uh, but before we do that, let me pray for us uh, as we begin. Father, thank you so much uh, for the story in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Thank you for Elijah. Thank you for the way that Elijah has pointed us towards Jesus, how we have been given a bigger vision of who Jesus is. Thank you that we have been able to see just how much greater Jesus is. And today, as we explore this, I pray that this would give us the perspective that we need, that it would give us the ballast, the stability we need in order to be able to get through all things. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work amongst us this morning, to be working on our hearts uh, and helping us to understand just how much greater Jesus is. And we pray this, Father, in your Son's name. Amen. Well, if your head is spinning a little bit, having heard Karen read out beautifully our passage, and you've been trying to figure out what is going on, don't worry, I can confirm there is a lot going on in that passage. And actually, it's one of those passages, the more you dig into it, almost the crazier it gets. And so how do you approach a passage like this? Well, over the last few weeks in this series, we've been been trying to show you a little bit of a method for reading the Old Testament uh, and then trying to demonstrate it. And we've had sort of two tips uh, on how to do it. The first is this, number one, the meaning is in the detail. And this is particularly true for narrative. These are stories and the bits that the author chooses to put in and include are not actually random. And the more you push into the detail, the more it can begin to make sense. And this is particularly true for 2 Kings 2. It is a wild ride the first time that you hear it. But we're going to see how it begins to make sense once we've understood particularly a couple of key bits of detail. And number two, the slide on the screen, the importance of seeing Jesus in the text. There's a wrong way to read the Old Testament. The wrong way is to move from the Old Testament straight to us. The right way to go is the Old Testament Jesus us. And why do we do it that way? Well, it's because the Bible itself tells us to read it that way. Uh, in John 5, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, religious leaders who know the Scriptures. Uh, and he says this to them in John 5, 39 and 40. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
Jesus is saying that to the Pharisees. If you read the Old Testament scriptures, they are testifying about me. And so we need to make sure that we do this when we read the Old Testament. And 2 Kings 2 is also a great little passage uh, so that we can see the problems when we skip Jesus. Uh, it goes straight from the Old Testament to us. Let's take that last little story. The prophet who's bringing God's word to the people gets mocked because he's bald. So the, the mockers get killed by, by the 42 of them get killed by two bears. Uh, and so if we were to move from the Old Testament straight to us, well, many of you should be very worried when you leave church today. Because the application is clearly, don't mock bald men who bring you the word of God. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Obviously, that's a joke, right? But you can see the problems when we move and the weird places when we, we can get into when we move straight from the Old Testament to us. So again, understanding the detail and then the need to go Old Testament Jesus, us, the bear story will hopefully make a little bit more sense. And so uh, with that method set up, Let's dig into the text. Uh, so do have those Bibles open. And the first thing to note is that this passage really has two main arcs, two sections to it. Uh, we have the Elijah arc, verses 1 to 12, which details the end of Elijah's journey. Uh, and then we have the Elisha arc, 13 to 25, that shows that Elisha is the successor to Elijah. So let's jump in on that first arc, the Elijah arc. Uh, and as we've been seeing, there's heaps of weird detail, but there's also a whole lot of humour uh, in this passage as well. Uh, we have Elijah. Uh, he's kind of dressed oddly in a cloak made of hair and a belt. We actually found that out in the chapter before in 2 Kings 1.8. And he's kind of wandering from town to town. Three times, Elijah tells Elisha, don't follow me. And Elisha says, nah, I'm going to anyway. Then we get the exact same story twice with the prophets. The prophets come out and they say to Elisha, you know the Lord is taking away your master. And Elisha basically says, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm a prophet as well, mate. <laughs> I know what's about to happen. Don't want to hear from you. Go away. Be quiet. Then Elijah, he parts the river Jordan with his cloak. They cross over. Elisha then asks for this double portion of Elijah's spirit. Elijah says, okay, but only if you see me disappear. And then, contrary to popular belief, Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind, not by a chariot of fire. Um, uh, so that's going to be disappointing for some of you. Um, but the chariot of fire actually stands between Elijah and Elisha. Uh, and just so you can properly understand this, the chariot of fire is basically the ultimate fighting weapon of the day. And so to translate into our Australian, in particular our Adelaide context, that's basically the equivalent of a nuclear submarine made of fire. So hopefully that's clear. Uh, so what's going on? How do we make sense of this? Well, there's a lot of detail we could look at, but in this passage, it's really the geography that helps us. Because we're given four geographical markers. Um, have a look at the map up there. Uh, you can see up there on the right, the green there. Uh, we have Bethel, Jericho, Gilgal, and the River Jordan. Uh, and then we have the wilderness on the other side of that. Uh, and so if you get stuck interpreting a passage, uh, which I totally did with this one, I was completely stumped with this passage as to what it meant. Uh, and I was stumped until I did this geography because the author wants us to be thinking about something. 
Elijah is mimicking something else. Uh, but actually, it is in reverse. We don't see it, but every in ancient Israelite would have recognised immediately what these four markers meant, these four geographical locations, Jordan, Gilgal, Jericho, and Bethel. And the more observant of you will have noticed a problem with the map. The problem with the map is that the arrows are going in the wrong direction. And that's because this is not a map of 2 Kings 2 and Elijah, This is a map from Joshua. This is the map of Israel's entry under Joshua into the promised land. And this is massively important. For those who aren't as familiar with this bit of the Bible, let's just back up a little bit to give you some context. Uh, The nation of Israel begins as a slave nation in Egypt. Then Moses brings them out of Egypt Uh, Go watch the DreamWorks classic Prince of Egypt if you need to catch up on that bit. And they're pursued by the Egyptians. And then they get trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. And we have this moment of sort of iconic deliverance. Moses stands there, he parts the Red Sea, the Israelites move safely through and they are saved. And this moment, this event becomes a crucial motif for the Jewish people. They're in mortal danger, then they are saved as they move through the waters and are delivered to freedom and safety on the other side. God promises to take them to a promised land, a place where they will be able to settle and call their home. But the Israelites don't trust God. And so they wander then around in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses gets angry and God tells him that you won't be able to enter the promised land. And so on the edge of the wilderness, as they're about to go in, Moses gives his last speech. We have that recorded in the book called Deuteronomy. And in that book then, Moses hands the leadership over to Joshua, whose name means, and this is going to be important, God saves. So Moses hands the leadership over to his successor, Joshua, God saves. And the first thing that then Joshua does is he repeats Moses' miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. He stands on the edge of the River Jordan and he parts it in two. And then the Israelites cross over. And then they camp at Gilgal. They then go on and attack Jericho and the walls come tumbling down. And where's the last place that they go? They then go to Bethel. And so with that background, you can hopefully see a little clearer what Elijah is doing. He's not being particularly subtle about it. Elijah is retracing Joshua's steps from Bethel to Jericho to Gilgal. And then just to make sure you realise the connection, he then parts the River Jordan at the same place that Joshua did. And then he's actually taken away... He's in the whirlwind at the same place where Moses was said to have died. Interestingly, in Jewish tradition, it is said that Moses' body is never found, just like Elijah. And then, just to hammer the point home, he hands over his leadership to Elisha, whose name means Yahweh saves. That is, God saves. It's the same name as Joshua. And the double portion, 
well, this is the last bit of important detail. Elijah passes on his leadership to someone who is going to be greater than he is. He passes it on to someone whose name means God saves. And this point is important because the author of 1 Kings and 2 Kings records seven miracles from Elijah. And how many miracles does he record Elisha doing? He records 14 miracles of Elisha. The point he's making is that Elisha is greater. Elijah in this story has only ever been a forerunner of someone who is greater who would come after him. He is, in a sense, a herald, a voice crying out in the wilderness of the one who would come after him to save. And so as we get to the end of Elijah, uh, he just simply appears at the beginning of the narrative and he just kind of disappears at the end. He's gone. But the funny thing about Elijah is that he doesn't actually completely disappear. Because his spectre hangs over the history of Israel. Because there's a prophecy that's made about him. In the final book of the Old Testament, the final book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And we get this prophecy uh, in Malachi 3.1. Malachi 3.1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now, we don't know who this is at this point. We don't know until the verse in the final chapter, in the final book of the Old Testament. This is how the whole Old Testament ends. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. That's the end of the Old Testament. What an end. The final prophecy. So who is this guy? Who is Elijah? What is he doing? Well, before we get there, we need to hold on to that question because we still need to look at the second half of this story. And we need to see who it is that Elijah literally passes his mantle over to. And this second half, there are four things that happen that sort of paint a picture for us of Elisha and his ministry. Well, first, firstly, like Joshua... Elisha proves that he is the true successor by parting the river Jordan and walking across. Verse 15, the company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. Then they went to meet him and they bowed down on the great ground before him. The Jericho prophets see the parting of the Jordan and they realize the connection. They realize who Elisha is and they pledge to follow him. So that's the first thing. He parts the River Jordan and walks across. The second thing, we see that he is in fact greater than Elijah. This is kind of the funny story where the prophets come to Elisha and say, let's go look for Elijah. And Elisha says, no, you shouldn't. He's gone. There's no point. And the prophets kind of just badger him for a little bit until he relents and says, okay, you can go. And surprise, surprise, they don't find anything. They come back and Elisha says, well, I told you so. 
And this demonstrates a few things. Number one, it tells us that Elijah's body is definitely gone. So they go out and they search for the body. They cannot find it. It's definitely gone. But secondly, and more importantly, there is no point looking for Elijah because someone greater is here. That's why Elisha doesn't want them to go out and look for it. Elisha is here. Why look for Elijah when you have the greater person standing in front of you? So that's the second story. Then the third one, events three and four kind of go together. The third event shows us that Elisha saves. We get the miracle of Elisha uh, where he purifies the land. Uh, The land is corrupt and unproductive, leading to death. But what does Elisha do? He heals the water And the water becomes pure, leading to life forever. And we've seen throughout this whole series, this is what happens when the word of God comes, when the word of the Lord comes. For those who turn to the word of the Lord for salvation, salvation comes. They are healed. God saves. And that is what Elisha will demonstrate in his life and ministry. But then, episode four, the last little bit we see the flip side of that. We see the saviour who judges. And this is the weird bear scene. And the detail of Bethel is important because previously in Kings, this is the heart of pagan worship in Israel. This is the centre of all the rebellion against God. And so the prophet comes to Elijah, sorry, the prophet arrives at Bethel and they mock him. It's probably because he shaved his head in mourning for Elijah. And so for those who reject the word of the Lord, judgment comes. There is healing for those who turn towards it when it comes, but there is judgment if you reject it. And we see that in Elisha, Elisha is both saviour and judge as he brings the word of the Lord to the people of Israel. And so we can summarise at this point what's happened. Elijah has passed on his leadership to one who is greater than he is. This next person called God saves will go into the promised land and redeem it. But he will redeem it both as saviour and judge. So then, what does this mean for us? Well, I hope you've been seeing that when we look at the detail, a pattern emerges. Elijah seems to be looking back. He's linking himself to Moses. But in doing so, it is though we're getting two hands in our backs pushing us forward to someone else. And what I want us to do is to go to the beginning of Mark's gospel. And let's see if Mark is trying to get us to think about Elijah. Let's see the way that Mark begins his gospel. Mark 1.1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophets. Now the first thing to say here is that uh, Mark doesn't really subscribe to 21st century citation policies on account of the fact that he's in 1st century Palestine. Uh, And people will have noticed that he's just mashed two prophecies together here. He's called it the Isaiah one, but see whether you can recognise the first half of this. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Who recognises where that's from? 
That's the Malachi prophecy from Malachi 3.1. goes on, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then what happens? Who appears? And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John appears, just out of nowhere, who is famous for appearing and then disappearing in the Old Testament. And then we get a little bit of geography. John is in the wilderness, baptizing people there in the River Jordan. So he's outside of Israel, baptizing people in the same location that Joshua and Elisha parted the Jordan. And what is he wearing? Verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, if I were to turn up at your house dressed in a blue latex suit with red underpants on the outside, a cape and a large S on my front, what would you think? Lots of thoughts. Um, but you say, Jack, why are you dressed as Superman? Because I'm clearly in a Superman costume. John appears in the wilderness as per the prophecies. And what's he dressed like? He comes dressed as Elijah. He's saying, I am the Elijah character. And then one more thing. What is John saying? Verse 7 and 8. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. As Moses passes on to Joshua, whose name means God saves, so Elijah passes on to Elisha, whose name means God saves, and so John passes on to Jesus, and who knows what the name Jesus means? It means God saves. <laughs> John passes on to the one who is greater than he is. And then three things happen to paint the picture of Jesus and his ministry. Number one, he walks into the River Jordan and he is baptised. But instead of the water being parted to signify the power of his successor, it is heaven that parts. And the Spirit descends and a voice from heaven says, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus stands with sinners in the Jordan in order to identify with us, to be with us. And God says, This is the plan, and I am well pleased. Number two, where does Jesus then go? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. That's an intentional reference to the Israelites wandering in the desert. But where Israel give into temptation, Jesus resists. Where humanity, humanity sins, Jesus does not. Then thirdly, as John is arrested, as John diminishes, Jesus proclaims the gospel for the first time. And we see that Jesus is both saviour and judge. Mark 1.15, that should be, The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent because God is judge. The kingdom of God has come and you cannot be in rebellion against the king. And saviour because the good news, the gospel, is that for those who turn, Jesus saves. He has come to save us from our rebellion, from our sin. We're not saved by doing good things. 
We're saved by believing that Jesus has done everything for us. Jesus is greater. Well, I asked at the start what is going to be your ballast in this next month or so. When life begins to hem you in, when work becomes all-consuming or the pressures at home become too much, what is that thing that is going to keep you steady? What is that thing that is going to be your ballast? We can't wish away the hard things of life. They're going to happen. But we can get things in perspective to remember what is important in life. And that's the ballast that we need. And that is what we need to understand from 2 Kings 2 and indeed from this whole Elijah series. If there's one thing that you should remember from 1 Kings and Elijah Elijah, is that Jesus is greater. Just how great? Well, we've been seeing it throughout this whole series. In talk one, we saw how God has made himself known in Jesus. When we feel lost, when we're confused about what is true or not, when we're overwhelmed by what we're learning and we wonder, is Jesus really true? We can remember that God has come for us. He has entered into this world. He has become flesh so that we can know him and that we can know the truth. Jesus is greater than any other truth claim that is out there. Any other worldview, any other religion, he is greater than anything else you can experience. This is the ballast that you need. In talk two, we saw that through Jesus, God turns back the hearts of his weak and broken people. When you feel that you are not worthy, that you are stuffing it all up, Jesus is greater. He has come for people who are weak and broken and in need. It's Jesus who heals the heart of those whose hearts are broken. And when you think it's all gone wrong, that it's all your fault, that it can't be fixed, then it's you that Jesus has come for. It is you that Jesus pours his love and his grace out for. His greatness is shown in the care and kindness that he shows those who are broken. Jesus is greater. Talk three. Our problem is not that we doubt God's plan will be accomplished. It's that we forget that it already has been and that this has been guaranteed by the Spirit. If you worry about what is going on in the world around you with all the pressing things that should be done, from the global problems, war in the Ukraine, Uyghurs in China, closing the gap here in Australia, to the internal, to the immediate problems, maybe a loved one whose marriage is failing, a child going off the rails, your parents' health. Maybe it's just COVID and you're overwhelmed by it all. It's okay. Jesus is greater. Plan A, the plan to save the world, has already been accomplished in Jesus. And while we see the problems, there is no problem that Jesus cannot solve. He has won over sin, death, and the devil, and he will come back. And when he does, all things will be made right. You don't need to be overwhelmed by what is going on. Jesus is greater. That's ballast. And last week we saw the heart of God on full display. He hates injustice, but he loves mercy as well. And that is our motivation to act. Because in acting, we are only ever reflecting the heart of how great our Jesus is and how great Jesus has acted towards us. Jesus is greater. 
There is nothing he does not see. There is nothing he is not in control over. And there is no injustice that won't be met. But he is also our saviour. He will offer mercy to those who need it. And he showed us that on the cross. That moment where justice and mercy met in a moment of divine love. Jesus is greater. And brothers and sisters, as we finish this series in Elijah, as we finish here this morning, as we face 2022, no matter what comes at you over this next year, over the rest of your life, in fact, no matter what life throws at you, this is the ballast that you need. This is the perspective that we all need. Jesus is greater than anyone or anything. Amen.